In today's episode, we open our Bibles for a brand new study to the first epistle of St. Peter, chapter 1. In his first letter, the Apostle Peter offers a profound exploration of Christian faith and living. He begins by reminding his readers of the enduring hope and salvation found only in Jesus, and then he encourages them to stand firm in their faith, even in the face of trials and suffering, emphasizing the value of a living hope and the preciousness of faith. Good morning and blessed Pentecost. Today is Wednesday, September 6th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Are you looking for a way to share the good news of Jesus Christ with people around the world? Do you want to support the mission of translating and publishing Lutheran books and materials into more than a hundred languages? Well, then you might be interested in our sponsor, the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. LHF is a nonprofit organization that works with churches and missionaries to provide resources for evangelism, discipleship, and leadership development. They have published over a thousand titles, including Luther's Small Catechism, Bible Stories, Hymnals, and much more. You can learn more about their work and how you can get involved on their website at lhfmissions.org. Well, this morning, to help us unroll the scroll of St. Peter's first epistle is the Reverend Roger Mullet. He's the pastor of Prince of Peace Lutheran Church in Buffalo, Wyoming. Good morning, Pastor. Welcome back to the show. Thanks, Pastor Boo. Good to be here. Well, this is the second time you've been on since you've been at your new call. A little bit of time has passed. I hope you're getting settled. How are things going there in Buffalo? Very well. Uh, the reception has been has just been so gracious, and and we're excited to be out here and uh, living right uh, right at the base of the Bighorn Mountains is uh, is not a bad thing either. Oh no, I probably a little more uh, temperate than Buffalo, New York, in the winter. But how how do you think the winter is going to be for you? Oh, you grew up in Wyoming, though, didn't you? Uh, I grew up in northern Michigan, so I'm very oh, much used Michigan. to the kind of uh, to that kind of snow. Uh, I'm told this past winter is the worst one they've had on record in Buffalo. Oh, no. Um, oh, no. So I'm being I'm being encouraged that it can't possibly be that bad yeah, twice in a row. There's no way it's going <laughs> to repeat that. Yeah. <laughs> well, good for you. Yeah, in Minnesota, it's sort of the same way. My first call was up in northern Minnesota, which was uh, climately, is that a word? Anyway, different than down here in the southwest corner of Minnesota. We're a lot more temperate. But um, yeah, I've never been to Wyoming, so I hear it's beautiful country out there, and I'm glad things are going well for you. Yeah, thank you. Well, we are opening a brand new book today, or unrolling the scroll, as I said. We're going to look at for, uh, Peter's first and second letters over the next couple of weeks, starting, of course, with the first one in the first chapter. But before we do anything, let's start our time together in prayer. Pastor, would you lead us in that? Let us pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that by your word and spirit, you have called us to saving faith in your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Help us by the same spirit to found our hope fully in him, to live according to your word and your will, though we may be grieved by various trials and tribulations, that in the end we may receive the salvation of our souls. Through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, brother, I don't know about you, but I feel like St. Paul gets, you know, all the attention when it comes to the letters. He did write most of them in the New Testament, but Peter's letters are just a, an amazing resource of Christian doctrine and living. I'm glad we're digging into them. 
But what do you think? Absolutely. Uh, you know, with, of course, Paul's letters being much longer by and large and uh, much more of them, I should say many more of them, I suppose, um, we don't hear First and Second Peter very much in the lectionary, either the three-year or the one-year. It's just not in there nearly as frequently as, as Paul's writings are. And I think they're probably a little less familiar to us for that reason. But they're, I mean, they're short. They're easy enough to to kind of sit down and read through First Peter in in one sitting is not terribly difficult, and there is so much good stuff in here. Particularly, um, what we do as Christians when we inevitably face the the sufferings that this world and this life on this side of heaven will throw at us. Yeah, and I've found that as I've read through, reread through in preparation for the next couple of weeks, First uh, and Second Peter. Yeah, you know, it's it's one of those texts that, as you said, we don't hear a lot, but you, it, it's kind of like that character actor when you when you see him in a movie and you go, I've seen this guy before in something else. Well, that's kind of how Peter is because you'll you'll be reading Peter and you'll come across a verse and go, Oh, that's where that verse comes from. There are a lot of little tidbits that you probably know very well out there, listener, and you probably never thought about it coming from Peter. I can't think of any off the top of my head, but I, that's what I've been experiencing as I've been reading through it again. Absolutely. I think especially probably in the next few days when you get into chapter two and chapter three, that's going to happen a lot. Yes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And probably um, something that people, as they follow along, they're going to go, yeah, wow, I'm just, I should have read Peter a long time ago. Well, I tell you what, you're the guest. How would you like to start off this? Would you, would you like to talk about who Peter is or the background of the letter you want to just dig in? I'm going to leave it up to you, brother. Yeah, it's interesting. We, we don't have as much about um, when exactly this is written, the way that we can pinpoint some of Paul's letters because of either historical details that he gives to us, or sometimes we kind of lay Paul's letters alongside the book of Acts, for example, and we can kind of narrow down, well, based on what he's talking about, he most likely wrote this letter in this year. We can't really do that with Peter's epistles, um, just because, first of all, there's not as much, and there's, and there's not as much specific detail in terms of historically what was going on. Um, I think the the little introduction that he gives, the little greeting, if you will, at the front of the letter, um, gives us a little bit of his audience. But even that is pretty broad, because um, yeah. it says he's writing to the elect exiles of the dispersion. Well, that's a lot of people. Uh, that's a that's a wide audience, and it includes both Jews and Gentiles. You know what we know about Peter himself from the from the Gospels said, of course, he's, he's usually seen as the spokesman of the Twelve, if you will. Uh, he often gets the, the speaking parts that are recorded for us, at least. <laughs> and, and that kind of zeal and leadership does continue in the book of Acts, um, sometimes even to the point of conflicts with Paul and with the others. Um, but that, that zeal for living the faith and, and believing the right things I think, uh, makes him, you know, the perfect candidate uh, for, for God to use to write such letters on, on suffering and the trials of the Christian, because Peter uh, certainly experienced those things firsthand, uh, not mm -hmm. only in following Jesus during his earthly ministry, but so also in his life as, as sort of a missionary to the Jews. That's kind of how he describes himself in Acts. Um, in, in the rest of his earthly days before his martyrdom, uh, which I think is in 68 AD, if I remember correctly, right around that time. 
Yeah, a lot of scholars, because of that and a couple other reasons, will say, well, this was probably in the 60s or something like that. Yeah, but to who it's written and when it was written is a little vague. I'm going to read the first couple of verses. This is essentially, for those, those listening at home, I want you to imagine a scroll, and if you wanted to sign your letter or address your letter, where would you put that? I mean, some of them had seals on them, so it would actually be written sort of on the top of the scroll on the back um, so that it could be seen while sealed up. Uh, some of them, it was just so that you could unscroll it just a little bit to see who it's from and who it's to. And, and that's sort of what we're getting here. If you unscroll the scroll just a little bit, you don't have to go all the way to the bottom. You're already going to see who it's from and uh, who it's to. That's what I'm going to read now from the English Standard Version. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for the obedience to Jesus Christ, and for the sprinkling with his blood, may, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So it's just an introduction, right? It's just a, hey, this is from Peter to you guys. Um, hey, nice. How you doing? How's your mama? Except even in these first two verses, which are fairly perfunctory, right? It's just, they're kind of just ordinarily what you would start a letter with. I feel like it's already deep and rich, full of unpackable theology. I mean, we have elect and what is it about the dispersion and what does he mean by the foreknowledge of God? And sanctification of the spirit and obedience to Jesus. I thought we, he did all the work. And, and so even in this little introductory letter, I think we have a lot to talk about. Absolutely. We could spend the rest of our hour just on these two verses, I think. <laughs> yeah, um, you're absolutely right. But I've been assigned an entire chapter, so we won't do that. Yeah, um, and, and, I'll, and I'll let you hopefully set the flow, but <laughs> I will tell you that I uh, sort of, the you, for folks at home to kind of know behind the scenes, we are live uh, right now, actually, and about every day. There's only two days a week that this is pre-recorded, and so I've actually pre-recorded a couple of episodes already from First Peter, and I think that was the feedback from my guests so far is it's just a, a whole chapter is too much because Peter is so deep and it's not something I thought about when I divided it up. So yeah, it's going to be a light <laughs> touch over the next couple of weeks, but uh, we'll, but we'll keep on going. But why don't we hit a couple of those topics though? I know he'll expand on them more as he goes through his letter, but um, the elect exiles of the dispersion. Um, let's yeah. just start there. What, what does it mean to be elect? And why are they being dispersed? Yeah, so a lot of this, the elect, the exiles, the dispersion, um, and you even get this with the sprinkling of the blood in verse 2. And I loved that you said unrolling the scroll, because that also, I think, unrolling the scroll for most readers, hearers of the scriptures, they're going to think more Old Testament than they are New Testament. Right. And, and all of this is Old Testament language, which is so cool. Um, so the elect are, are simply those who are, are chosen by God's grace, who belong to him. These it would be very much the same as saying the believers or the saved, if you will. Now, exiles and exiles of the dispersion, those things go together. Um, so the dispersion, you might have heard the Greek word that we kind of stole into English, which is the diaspora or the diaspora Jews. And those would be the Jews who have been scattered in this instance, uh, based on the places he's naming, mostly into what is modern day Turkey and maybe a little ways into Greece. 
Um, but these would be Jews who have been scattered away from their home in Israel. And we see this a little bit um, in the Old Testament. We might often think of the destruction or the downfall of the Northern Kingdom when those 10 tribes that made up the Northern Kingdom were lost, were scattered. And, and historically, it's still kind of hard to nail down what exactly happened to all of them. Um, so the, I think there's a little bit of an aspect of that, too. But with this exiles and the dispersion, this idea that these believers are scattered away from their true home is true in the temporal sense with regard to Israel and Jerusalem, but is also true of all believers in a very real sense with that we are separated from our true home, which is in heaven and looking even further forward to the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, and so he's writing to these who are away from home who are not quite where they belong. Uh, and, and that's going to help us unpack this idea of suffering and the, and the trials and tribulations and so on. Now, the uh, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, I think can trip people up because when it says exiles, uh, or sorry, elect exiles, it, it makes sense, right? Because God's chosen people are the elect. And now Peter's using this calling, this, this chosen language, to talk about the New Testament believers, the church, and so it makes sense. But according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, this is meant to be of great comfort, right? I mean, it, you know, it God selects his people for a relationship with him. He does that selecting through the proclamation of the gospel and through baptism and the sacraments in these days. Um, so when he's talking about the foreknowledge of God, this isn't for us to take completely out of context and say, oh, God's already decided who's going to heaven and going to hell. It doesn't matter what we do or say, because that would be the exact opposite of Peter's overall message. But he still includes this idea that God knows what's going on. I would say that's very important to people who are facing suffering, very comforting even. Absolutely. Uh, he, right, God, chooses us. And I mean, I think foreknowledge does go with election, uh, very yes. closely, that yes. that God knows us, that God chooses us. And, and you know, it, it is kind of hard to wrap our minds around because our doctrine of election is, it does run a little counter to, to strict human reason and logic. I'm reminded of a, a hymn, I think it's 573 in our hymnal, Lord, tis not that I did choose thee, that I know could never be for this heart, our sinful heart, would still refuse thee, had thy grace not chosen me. But that's what's going on here. And that foreknowledge, as you kind of hinted at, goes much broader than that. That God not only has foreknowledge, knowing what's going to happen before it happens, but he also has knowledge of what is happening to us in the here and now. He's aware of our suffering. He's aware of our trials and tribulations. And he's not turning a blind eye or a deaf ear to us. And, and, and not only is he not doing that, but he has gifted us uh, the Holy Spirit, right? And, and he, the Holy Spirit, then enables us for obedience to Jesus Christ. So Peter starts this all off with pretty much, you know, everything I'm going to say is based on this reality, that you have been dispersed, but you're chosen. And God has uh, chosen you to be sanctified for obedience and so it shouldn't be a surprise to us that what he's going to be talking about throughout these letters is obedience. It's it's kind of like James, right? It's a letter for Christians, not how to become saved, but how do you live as a saved and redeemed 
member of God's kingdom. Um, anything there, else before we read more stuff? Go ahead. Yeah, very similar to James, I think. I think there's a lot of neat parallels to be found there. The last thing I would mention, I guess, is here in verse 2, we have the entire Trinity named, which is pretty cool. Um, the foreknowledge of the Father, the sanctification of the Spirit, which is that setting apart, that making holy that happens to us when we are called to be God's children, and and how. Obedience to Christ, which is the life that we live, and for the sprinkling with his blood, which I think refers not only to how we are made his children, but also to that ongoing reality that we continue to receive grace and forgiveness by the sprinkling of Christ's blood, which is another great Old Testament thing. Look back to like Exodus 24, for example, when Moses would actually sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice upon the people. We don't do that literally now, of course, but that same forgiveness of sins that is earned by the blood of the sacrifices in the Old Testament is continually applied to us as we remember our baptism, as we confess our sins and receive absolution, as we partake of the Lord's Supper. Let's keep on going, starting with verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him, and though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of of your souls. All right, let's stop there, the end of nine. Um, you know, Peter is also giving Paul a run for his money on the uh, run-on sentences that Paul <laughs> typically is fond of too. Um, just long stretches of, of, of information, and I don't want to read too much into it, but whenever I read this in Paul or read it here in Peter, or especially in the Greek, you really do get the sense of like an excitement, you know, just the reason why they're long is because that's just kind of what happens when you translate Greek into English. But, but at the same time, they're just building upon one another and you can just see the excitement that he has, the zealousness for proclaiming what he calls here, the great mercy, right? That he has caused us to be born again. This is a concept that is completely foreign to my upbringing where you had to choose Christ. And yet since becoming a Lutheran and since frankly reading the Bible for myself, over and over and over again, there's this common theme. You or the, the natural man cannot choose God or cannot decide for God. And we have to be called through the Holy Spirit or by the Holy Spirit through the gospel. And, and so here's just another example of that for our Arminian friends or our decision theology friends. He has caused us to be born again. And how? Through the resurrection of Jesus. Yeah, and that's a great reminder, right? As we mentioned, this is this is clearly a letter written to Christians. Um, there's not a whole lot in here about how one goes about being saved uh, because he's operating on the assumption that they are already, and now we're going to talk about what to do about it. Um, but there is, again, right, this is such a crucial point for us to understand as Christians. We didn't actually do anything 
to be saved, right? It was all the work of God uh, carried out in the person and work of Christ, especially Christ on the cross and delivered to us by the power of the spirit. And all of that, right, this born again, he doesn't come right out and say baptism, but I think that's what we can hear. And, and, and born again, what? To a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. We might remember Romans 6, where we're baptized into the death and resurrection of Jesus, that his death defeats sin, and that's our death. And his resurrection to new life, that's our resurrection to new life. And, and what? To that inheritance uh, that is kept in heaven. And uh, so then, what do we do about it? We begin now to unpack um, living as Christians in the midst of what Peter calls these various trials. Um, that's this salvation, right? The, the end goal, obtaining the outcome of the faith, which is the salvation of souls. That will be revealed in the last time. And we see that a couple different places here. Revealed in the last time, and then in verse 7, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And I think we can see in that the second coming or his coming on the last day or judgment day, however, however you want to talk about it. Uh, that's probably what we're talking about there. And in the meantime, what does that look like? We are grieved by various trials and our faith will be tested. The genuineness of our faith will be tested so that it might result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus returns. So you have not seen him. You love him. You do not now see him. And that's an easy thing to fill in. You do not now see him, but you will. Right. You will when he returns, when we obtain, finally, the salvation of our souls. And I think it's important here uh, with, again, remembering that our salvation is given to us as a gift, not caused by something we do, but caused by God, that, that we don't get the idea that this is a very literal uh, obtaining the outcome, the salvation, that, that we don't have it now, because we do. Uh, it just right. looks different now than it will then. Um, that that we do have salvation now. We do have certainty of that salvation now. And and simply to say, you know, at the last day, living by faith will no longer be necessary in the way that we understand it now, because we'll be able to see perfectly when Jesus returns. And someone might ask, they say, and that word you used, assurance is important. Actually, you didn't use assurance, you used certainty. That word of certainty is important because... You know, people might ask, well, why is he bringing up how we're saved if he's talking to people who are already saved? And that's because there is great comfort in knowing that all the work for your salvation was done by Christ and affected by his will. Uh, you know, for those who are undergoing persecution or their faith is being challenged in various ways, there's some great comfort in knowing that you didn't have to say the sinner's prayer the right way, or you didn't have to get dunked in the right way, or you didn't have to, there weren't all these hoops for you to jump through. It's just, he's, he has foreknowledge. He sees you, he knows you, he's chosen you. Therefore, when you go through all these trials and tribulations, that's one thing you don't have to worry about. Yes, it's going to test the genuineness of your faith. And yes, you have faith in one whom you do not see right now, but that's going to change one day. Uh, reading just a few more verses, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of the Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you 
by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Well, that last one is uh, very uh, ominous, isn't the word? Just uh, It's sort of heavy, has gravitas, right? You There have been things preached to you, uh, and things into which the angels would love to see. Explain that for us, brother. Isn't that a cool thing to say? Wow, what a neat thing to say. Um, and and frankly, kind of weird uh, and kind of hard yeah, to understand. Right. But I, I think we, I think this helps us see a reality that we don't often think about. It helps us appreciate something that, that frankly, we don't often appreciate, which is that salvation was worked by Christ, by God, taking on human flesh, that he became one of us. And that in him, we are exalted even above the angels. I think we often think of the angels as as some superior, heavenly, far beyond all humanity sort of being. And I think it's important to remember, and this is a concept that we find in the scriptures really all the way back to the creation. We don't know exactly when the angels were created. Um, it's, It's not spelled out specifically, but time and time again, when creation is talked about in Genesis one and two and elsewhere, it is clear that mankind in the image and likeness of God is, if you will, the crown jewel of creation. It is only after Adam and Eve that God says it is very good. And so keeping that in mind, that Jesus actually became one of us, became man for us, and is still man uh, for us, and that we will be raised like him and glorified like him, that we inherit heaven with him, right? Co-heirs, uh, Paul calls us, that that we even go beyond the angels. It is remarkable, I think, and, and one of the reasons this carries such weight in our ears is that it is remarkable for us to think that there might be something that we as mankind receive that the angels might long for, that they might in a, you know, in not in a, in a sinful sense, I don't want to go too far down that road, um, but that they might actually be be sort of envious of that, that God took on our flesh. He didn't become an angel. He became a man. And that we, in fact, will be exalted with Christ even above the angels. Angels seem to have some interest in human affairs, almost from the perspective of a curiosity. I think of Luke 15. I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. They are invested, of course, in doing God's will. That's what they were created to do. But they don't have the same crown jewelness as you talked about. You know, they're very powerful and old creatures, but they are creatures like us. And yet, as you said, you know, human beings are the peak achievement of God's creation, which is why I think we have phrases like, you know, you'll judge the angels and things like that that sometimes confuse us because I don't think we have a good understanding of, of exactly what angels are. Most people, I, I think, don't. But the things into which angels long to look, I think, is another assurance for these people under persecution that look how much God loves you. Not only has he chosen you, he's gifted you uh, wisdom and grace and things that even the angels are fascinated by, and it's all for you. Um, Folks, we're right here at our break, so we're going to take it. But just consider that. 
that you are the crown jewel of God's creation and he's with you in good times and bad. And we'll keep on going when we come back from our break and we'll talk about being called to holiness from St. Peter. We'll see you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me today is the Reverend Roger Mullet. He's the pastor of Prince of Peace Lutheran Church in Buffalo, Wyoming. Friends, it's a joy to have you with us diving into God's Word on the show this morning, uh, or anytime you're tuning in. Maybe it's not in the morning. Maybe you're tuning in in the evening on a podcast or online at kfuo.org or via the radio app. Either way, just grateful that you're here. And if you have any questions or thoughts or you just want to drop a friendly hello, don't hesitate to get in touch. You can shoot me an email at pastorboo at gmail.com or you can find me on Facebook. Pastor, before the break, we were just uh, getting into the middle of the first chapter where we were talking about things into which the angels long to look and it's hard to get our mind around that concept. But plenty more to talk about. Anything else before we move on to the second half of the chapter? I think in those last couple of verses that you read, 10 to, what is it, 10 to 12, I suppose, that, that we get this reference to the prophets, which we can hear now, of course, as what we now call the Old Testament scriptures, right? That all the Old Testament speaks of this Christ, this Messiah who will suffer and die and rise again. And that, that prediction, that promise, even from the very outset of human history, is what drives now our call to be holy, which is which is really the second bit. This that it has been talked about from ages of ages, if you will, that God Himself will take on flesh and suffer and die for all mankind. And and verse thirteen appropriately begins with a therefore, which says all that stuff we just talked about. It's important, and this is why then we can have what we have next. Mm, well, let's get into what we have next. Uh, let's see here. We're going to be reading 13 through uh, whenever it feels right to stop. Here we go. <laughs> Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, 
conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith, hope, and hope are in God. We're going to pause right there. Uh, almost, almost uh, in the middle of his thought, because but the next section is something we're going to have to struggle with. So let's, let's just start with this first <laughs> section. Um, preparing your minds for action, be sober-minded, and be obedient. Um, grace will, will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Well, this is after Jesus's life, death, and resurrection into heaven. So what revelation is happening in the future, which will bring grace? What, I guess what I'm saying is, what is he saying? What's he talking about? Yeah, I think, uh, as we mentioned before, I think earlier in this chapter, when he says at the revelation of Jesus Christ, it seems from the context that we're mostly talking about the last day. And here, I think we can see a little more nuance. I think we can see kind of different layers of what's going on here. Um, there is certainly that idea that the grace that will be brought to you is simply the fullness of salvation, the resurrection of our bodies, the inheritance of the new heavens and the new earth and all of that. But I think we can we can see a little bit of that, or at the very least, we can think of applications of this grace revealed to us in the meantime, uh, in those places that God has promised to be for us, or specifically the promises that Jesus has promised to be for us while we are still here on this side of heaven, namely in word and sacrament, in Christian fellowship, uh, in prayer to our Father through uh, the Son, and things like that, that we do receive God's grace uh, in those things, uh, in, even in, you know, as our, as our uh, small called articles talk about, they mention the mutual conversation and consolation of the brethren as, and Luther calls it a means of grace there, which I think we understand not not in the in the narrower sense of that term where we mean delivering forgiveness of sins and so on, but that that is a way that God's grace is shown to us even in the meantime in Christian fellowship in prayer and of course by word and sacrament where we do receive God's grace and the forgiveness of sins. I wanted to uh, just briefly make a note about the Greek in the first part of verse 13, preparing your minds for action. In oh, Greek sure. it says, it says, gird up the loins of your mind, um, <laughs> which is an Old Testament way of saying, get ready to go to battle, that's right? right? Um, because that's very much what the Christian life on this side of heaven is. Uh, and all of this, right, uh, kind of framed in, as we'll get to in the next few verses, the sufferings of Jesus, um, because it's a battle. There will be sufferings, there will be trials and tribulations, and, and it is always described that way. Uh, Jesus says to, for anyone to follow him, that we must take up our crosses. And that's something that every Christian must do and consider, um, that there is suffering, there is a battle um, that, that we do have to fight here below, so to speak. But we set our hope, as verse 13 says, on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation, which is to say, finally, at the last day, we can set our hope fully on that because we know that the victory has already been won. We're fighting the say, battle. This is a chance to talk about a little bit the now but not yet uh, reality of our salvation, right? So, you know, your hope on the grace that will be brought. So really, you've been declared 
forgiven. You've been you've been washed uh, in the blood of the Lamb, and yet you're like, well, but I still am tempted by sin, and and I still give into that temptation every now and then, and I still need forgiveness every day, and it's like I don't I don't you know that's that simul ustus epicator stuff, right? Saint and sinner, but really it's about this is your reality, even if it doesn't feel like it yet. And and that now but not yet mentality is something that I've really appreciated as as becoming a Lutheran and growing in the Lutheran perspective that, you know, it's not about striving for perfection so that we can earn our salvation. It's about relying on the Holy Spirit to guide us as we rely on Christ's forgiveness. It's just a different mindset. And I think it brings a lot of peace to the Christian, especially those who might be struggling with their faith as these early Christians were. Absolutely. And and that's, I think, again, noting the importance of, even though it's a, it's a brief mention, Peter does mention all the way back in verse three, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. That reminder that our ultimate salvation does not come from something that we do for God, but only by the things that God has done for us. And that's how we can be certain, even in the midst of, as you said, right, it's not always going to feel like we're forgiven. And sometimes when we are attacked by temptations and we fall into those temptations, it's going to feel like we might not even really be all that Christian or our faith might not be all that strong. But it is so important to remember, right? Our salvation is not worked by the strength of our faith, but by the strength of he in whom our faith is placed, namely Jesus Christ. I mean, if you're a Christian out there and you're facing a temptation, maybe it's the pet sin that you continue to struggle with. And as you look into that temptation and you're yet again on the verge of, uh, you know, giving into it, I think it's a lot easier to resist that in the Holy Spirit if you are thinking, I am a redeemed child of God. I am forgiven. I've been given a new life, as opposed to the idea of, well, here's another trap that the Lord has set for me to tempt me to see if my faith is really strong enough to for him to forgive me. What an awful way to think about it. Not only is it not biblical, it's just defeating as you continue to meet resistance in this life from the world and your own sinful nature. So to be able to meet the temptations ahead by saying, look, I have been redeemed for God, or let's say that temptation involves another person, that person is someone for whom Christ died. When you look at it at from, I guess, frankly, a Christian worldview, then you understand, I can call on the Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. And you might think, well, no, no, I don't want him to judge my deeds. Well, he does judge your deeds, but your deeds are judged in light of the forgiveness of Christ. So it's really a both and. Yes, of course, you're supposed to resist sin and live good, clean lives according to the way God wants you to be. He's very clear about that. Be holy as I am holy. But he's also very clear that that life of holiness comes from knowing that you've been redeemed and saved. So it, it does it make it easy. No. But does it make it easier? I actually think so. Absolutely. I mean, when you think about the way that I know we're talking about Peter, but Paul uses the image of slavery to sin all over the place and being set free from that slavery. You know how easy it is when you're faced with, and and for so many people, it's the same handful of temptations and the same handful of sins over and over yeah. that that it really does feel like a trap, like we are just doomed to commit those same sins and there's nothing we can do about it. What we're reminded of here is, Look, you've been ransomed. You've been purchased away from that. 
And what? Not with, I love this. This is clearly where Luther was looking when he wrote the small catechism, not with perishable things such as gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Christ. Right. Right. That you've been purchased away from, you've been set free from that. You don't have to give in anymore. The Holy Spirit is with you and can help you overcome. Right. Um, Because of the precious blood of Christ, a nice reminder and a connection back even to the very little introduction to this letter where we have the sanctification of the spirit and the sprinkling of the blood of Christ that does rescue us from that. That doesn't mean we're going to escape sin entirely on the side of heaven. Um, but I do think it means we can, we can fight the good fight, as it were, with sort of a renewed vigor, knowing that God really is on our side. God really is with us. And the suffering that Christ underwent to win us away from all of this it, it, it really does give meaning to our suffering. Christ suffered on this side of heaven. And so we, following in his train, if you will, suffer on this side of heaven. It, it kind of, you know, the, the Christian outlook on suffering is, is different than literally any other outlook on suffering. Mm-hmm. Yeah, our, his, our suffering connects us to his suffering, and we rejoice in that of course, joy not necessarily equating to happiness. And, and you know, I think there's two ways to look at this or two ways people respond to this. You could say, okay, look, since I'm forgiven, then it doesn't matter what I do. And that's, uh, you know, again, to bring St. Paul in, that's sort of a, you know, should we sin so that grace may abound? Heck no, he says. Um, but that's not what we're saying. We're saying since you've been forgiven, now understand what God has done for you, how he has chosen you, how he has redeemed you, and now how he has equipped you to resist this sin. So it's not about saying, I'm forgiven, therefore it doesn't matter what I do. It's about, I'm forgiven, therefore I don't have to give in to this sin. And that's that 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 slavery language that Paul uses. Um, you think of a slave who, even in first century times, which is a little different than the slavery of the Americas that we think of often, but even then, it's so much easier just to stay in service to someone who provides for your food and clothing and housing and what to do than it is to go out, strike it out on your own and try to live a life independent of, of, you know, it's just easier to go back to what's familiar, even if it's not ideal. Well, he doesn't use the term slavery, but that's exactly what Peter's saying here. Verse 14, as obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Or he says um, uh, elsewhere, um, your futile, your futile ways inherited from your forefathers. So, yeah, absolutely. This is uh, you are given a new life. You are freed from having to live, uh, I guess, in servitude to your sin and your own desires. Doesn't mean we won't fall into it, but boy, that's got to be of comfort to Christians who were, you know, it's not only far from home, but also, you know, looking out in the world and saying, we are we're different than everybody else. And it doesn't feel comfortable to be different than everybody else. That's always been one of the challenges people have faced. They want to act like the world, not because the world's right, but because it's just so much easier. Yeah. Yeah. That's absolutely true. Um, and I think, I mean, do not be conformed. Right. And we get that, uh, you know, Paul does a very similar thing in Romans 12, for example, um, with this confirmation to the world, conformation, I should say, with an O, um, to the ways of the world. And, you know, one of the things that I think as we're, as we're struggling against these temptations to sin and so on, particularly as we're struggling with temptations to things that the world doesn't think are sins, 
that it is so easy for us as Christians to, well, what really is that going to hurt? What really is the worst thing that could happen? And it's easy for us to be kind of desensitized to those kinds of things. And it's important to remember that, look, even if the world says something isn't a sin, and even frankly, if to your flesh, to your sinful heart and mind and body, such a sin feels good, it's important to remember that these things are not good and that they are harmful to you, even if not even if that harm isn't immediately recognizable. But the important thing here, right, with this call to be holy is not that God's trying to take away what feels good or is trying to make you weird for the purpose of being looked at weirdly by the unbelievers around you, but rather because you have been called to something better, not just higher for the sake of robotic obedience, but something that is actually better for you, something that is actually good for you in heart and mind and soul and body, even on the side of heaven, that these things are good for you. And that's what God wants. He does want what is good for you. Not that he wants necessarily you always to be happy. That's not really scriptural. Not that he wants you always to be without pain or without suffering. That's not always necessarily what's good for you, but that he does want what's truly good for you. And that will, of course, give way at the revelation of Christ when we have eternally what is good for us, namely life with him that has no end. That's all the more important to remember when the things that we do in this world that are sinful sometimes feel good, and when we follow after God's will, that tends to be when we meet with resistance. The devil attacks us. The world attacks us. And uh, I was talking about this with my class this morning. I have a Wednesday morning Bible class also at 9, and I was talking about this with them, and I said, you know, Satan isn't attacking or trying to resist those who are out there dividing the church. It's only those who are striving to be faithful. So while doing things according to the way God wants you to do them typically means things will go better, it also means that you're going to have that much more resistance from the world and from your own sinful nature. I don't think we have to leave it up to the devil to tempt us. we got plenty of concupiscence <laughs> enough to tempt ourselves without his help. This next part, though, now we've talked very clearly, and Peter's been very clear that it's all because of Christ and everything he's done. And But this next one, I think, can be misunderstood. That's why I paused right before it. I'm going to read the rest of the chapter, and uh, here we go. Verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For, and this is a quote, all flesh is like grass and all its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So if you didn't catch it, folks at home, the part I think people get confused by is the having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. I think that's ripe for misinterpretation and misunderstanding. Yeah, that sounds a lot like you are the one who, by virtue of your obedience to the truth, you've you've now made your own soul to be pure. Right. Um, and that's I, and and, I've heard it preached, not in Lutheran context, thankfully, but for those who are very keen to just sort of take them out of context and just throw them out there, that's why it's important to know Peter's context, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And in that wider context, and we could, I mean, we could quibble a little bit with the Greek, but it's, it's pretty faithful here. 
Um, and that's, that's why the wider context is important. Um, it's important, I think, if we're going to do a little bit of grammar, that it is passive, that your souls have been purified by something that is not you. Um, and, and that's important to remember. Um, but it's, it's very much the same way, I think, uh, a, a helpful parallel might be to consider what we pray in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And that sounds a lot like, hey, look, I've forgiven all of these people who have sinned against me, God, so now you have to forgive me. And, and it, I think they sound pretty similar, but it's important to see and to remember rightly the flow of things here, that our souls have been purified. And, and go, back to, go back to the very beginning of the chapter or of the book itself, right? In the sanctification of the spirit for obedience. So right. having purified do, your souls. To do the will of God, right. Yeah. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, which is to say simply, your souls have been purified by the sanctification of the spirit and they are continually purified, right, by your obedience in the power of the same spirit, which is to say, living the Christian life, as we've already talked about, right, it is, it's kind of weird in the eyes of the world. It's certainly different than what the world will tell you to do. But that is where good and godly things happen. There's, I don't think, anything wrong with saying that living the Christian life brings blessings to the Christian, even on this side of right. heaven, Agreed. that living an unchristian life does not. Right. right. Oh, yeah, and, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And we, and we, we, of course, rightly, I think, teach against this concept of making a decision for Christ uh, in terms of salvation. But I think having been sanctified, right, made holy, set apart for God's service by the power of the Spirit, which is simply to say, having been saved, having been set free from our sins and so on, we can actually now we can quote unquote, make a decision for Jesus, right? We can make choices that are in line with God's will. Now that's by the power of the spirit working in us. But I think that's closer to what we're talking about here. It's important. Yeah, I've I always joked. See... I've always joked that Lutherans indeed give their hearts to Jesus. They just wait till confirmation, right? So <laughs> there you what, go. What, what is that otherwise? I mean, it's not a sacrament that we by our definition, and it's not something that God necessarily does for you through it. So really, it's just you standing up there saying that you're going to start taking your faith more seriously. And of course, um, any opportunity for kids to do that is fine. Uh, but I have some controversial views on confirmation, but that's for another show. But in any, <laughs> in any case, I'm looking at the grammar here in the Greek, and you're right, purified is passive. Of course, the, the, the actor there is the obedience, right? So you're purified, but it's by your obedience. So your obedience is doing the purifying. But if you read it in context, you also see that you cannot be obedient lest the Holy Spirit is working that sanctification in you. So even if you say, I gave my heart to Jesus, even if you say, I, I said the sinner's prayer, or I'm doing everything I can to follow God's will, good, you're supposed to do all those things. You're supposed to pray and ask for forgiveness. You're supposed to publicly confess that you belong to Christ. Just don't think any of that's saving you. It's just the fruits of your faith. Yeah, and you know, and back in verse 14, we've already been called obedient children. I think <laughs> right. this is... I think this is just a statement, frankly, of how this living 
as Christians, right? The call to do good works, and this is much more explicit, I think, in in James than it is here necessarily. Uh, but this this call to do good works, this call to live a holy life as a Christian, this calling us obedient children, it's simply a statement of the way things are for us. We have been sanctified, set apart by the Holy Spirit. Now we are obedient children. That's just what we do. Good works flow out of saving faith. That's just what happens. When you are a Christian, good works follow out of your saving faith. That's just the way it works. A good tree bears good fruit, as Jesus says. And that's how brotherly love, loving one another earnestly from a pure heart. And why? Remember, right? He kind of frames this first chapter. He begins and ends with this salvation that gives rise to, if you will, that causes these good works and this love in us since you have been born again. Right. I, and, and that's, and that is what is so key. And I think I do the same thing in my sermons often, you know, I will just sort of declare what we are as people, even if it doesn't reflect the current reality, if that makes sense. So, you know, you are a people who are in the word. That's a declarative statement, but it's truthful because as Christians, that's what you do. You're in the word. So when you look at that and you go, well, I'm not in the word. Oh, well then go get in the word because that's who you are. That's who you are. So it's a, when I say, or sorry, when Peter says you're obedient children, he's projecting who you really are, whether that matches reality or not. The difference for us then, our task is then to work harder and harder by the power of the Holy Spirit and the guidance of the God's word and law to become who we are. Um, we're that regardless of, of any other reality, but if that's who we are, then we want to be the fullness of who God has made us to be. And he quotes here Isaiah at the end, beautiful passage from Isaiah. It's quoted quite often in the scriptures actually, um, but it just is a reminder that everything in this life, whether it's trial or tribulation, even ourselves doesn't remain forever on this earth. The word of the Lord remains forever. There's an eternity beyond that. Well, we just got a couple of minutes, brother. I'll give you the last word before we end. Sure. I think that quotation from Isaiah 40 is so, so crucial to the whole thing that, that Peter is setting up for us as the letter goes on, right? Because we have that foundation on the word of the Lord. And that's where our salvation ultimately comes, not just by the word as it is proclaimed, but the word as he becomes flesh to earn our salvation by the outpouring of his blood. We are obedient children who have been baptized into him. Why? Not because we try harder and harder, but by the spirit who has been given to us and who makes us holy by the blood of Christ, that we can endure sufferings, that we can face trials, that we can live a holy Christian life precisely because we have been called by the gospel and set apart for this holy life by the God who loves us and sent us his son. And that foundation, that comfort, that certainty that we've mentioned a few times throughout our time together this morning, it falls back on those things that God has done for us. God doesn't leave us in a place where we have to look to ourselves for our certainty because our emotions, our attitudes, our good works and things, those go up and down just as much as the world around us changes each and every day. But that word of the Lord that remains forever, that is a sure foundation. That's something we can always fall back on for comfort and certainty and hope, even in the midst of, and especially in the midst of these trials that on this side of heaven are sure to come. 
I think that's a perfect word to end the show on. I'd like to thank my guest, the Reverend Roger Mullet. He's the pastor of Prince of Peace Lutheran Church in Buffalo, Wyoming. Thanks again for being on the show. Always glad to be with you. Thank you. Folks, tomorrow we have the Reverend Dr. Burnell Eckhart. He's going to come in and talk about Chapter 2. Peter delves deeper into the essence of Christian living. He highlights the significance of believers as living stones. He even emphasizes the importance of submitting to authority. So lots to talk about tomorrow. I hope you're here with us. Until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray. Father, keep us in thy strong word.